We need to now think in a much more organic way that the children born today are going to live into the 22nd century. Their children are going to live into the 23rd century. Future Generations, an IAS podcast. Welcome to the Future Generations podcast of the Institute of Advanced Studies. I'm Tessa Roseboom, Professor of Early Development and Health here at the University of Amsterdam. And today I'm here with Sir Peter Gluckman, who is today's guest on our podcast. We actually share research interest into how human beings were shaped by the environment in which they grow and develop. But you, Peter, have had a really interesting career advising the Prime Minister of New Zealand. You are currently the director of the Centre for Informed Futures, and you're also the president of the International Science Council. So I'm really, really excited to talk to you about science for society. And I'd really like to welcome you to the podcast. Well, thanks, Tessa. I think we first interacted so many years ago on issues of intergenerational outcomes from the Dutch famine study. So we have a lot to talk about. Absolutely. So I'm really excited uh, about today, um, 7th of November, when we're launching the Future Generations Conversations. And I'm really happy that we're starting this project in which we uh, realize that we're standing on the shoulders of our ancestors and the world we live in today is being shaped by those who came before us, but that we are shaping the world in which future generations will live. So the Future Generations podcast is part of this Future Generations conversations that we're starting today in the Allard Pearson Museum, where scientists, politicians, policymakers, NGOs and societal organizations are coming together to have conversations about what we can do to build the best possible future and how we can contribute with our science to society and make hopefully uh, make the world um, a better place for future generations to live in. Um, maybe I can just jump into the conversation and ask you, knowing that each and every one of us was shaped by the environment in which we grew and developed, and that actually the egg that made you and me was formed when our mothers were in our grandmother's womb, showing that what we're doing today is not only affecting people alive today, but is also affecting the lives of the generations to come. When we realize this, do you think that science is actually asking the right questions to uh, solve societal challenges? I don't think science is well-constructed and designed to answer those questions. I think that science is very good and asking the next questions that technology allows science to ask from what we already know. And the whole science system is really predicated on adding one more brick to the brick of the wall of knowledge that we already have. But we've accumulated a raft of what some people call wicked problems, complex issues, social cohesion, uh, the, what kind of education system will is right for a child who's, now, who's born today and is going to live into the 22nd century. The issues of climate change, the issues of how we live with very rapidly emerging technologies. Uh, there's many questions, the issues of what the political economy should look like, like how do we deal with increasing disparities within communities. All of these are issues which have scientific solutions or have science could add to the solutions of them. But the way the science system is organized is not designed to provide those solutions. And so we at the International Science Council in particular are trying to encourage discussion with funders, with governments to think about how the science system needs to evolve to be more effective in dealing with these kinds of more complex issues. That's not at the expense of what we might call the traditional way of doing science. We still need that science mm -hmm. to discover a new drug, to solve the problem of uh, batteries or to produce green hydrogen or whatever. But those are not the issues of the day for most people. And the world they're going to live in is exceptionally more complex 
than the world we lived in prior to the internet, prior to globalization, prior to many other phenomena. And the rate of development in technology is so fast that how we will live in a world of virtual reality, of AI, of large language models, of quantum, these are issues that are very real. And at the same time, we've got the issues of here and now that are very real. Effective polarization, loss of social cohesion, democracy not working very well. These are all issues which science has an important contribution to make too. Right. And, and could you tell us something more about how you see science contributing to all, the, all of these wicked and really complicated problems? Well, I think, first of all, we better be clear what science is, because right. <laughs> science is an awkward word. You have a better word in German or Dutch, Wissenschaft, which, yeah. which, which reflects the broader na natural range of knowledge disciplines which have a particular discipline to them, from the social sciences, the natural sciences, and the humanities. And science is based on observations of the, of the real world. It's based on observations. Mm -hmm. It's based on those observations being open to being tested and reviewed by other scientists. It's open to, and whether they're natural scientists or social scientists or humanists, they can be tested. And the explanations can only be based on reality, on logic, or other observations. We can't appeal to the supernatural or to tradition or other reasons to explain our knowledge. So science is a particular kind of knowledge system. It's a universal knowledge system. And it can add to any question that society has. But science has its limits. There are things that science cannot answer. And science, while it's not values-free, cannot really answer the questions which are determined by the values of a society. And so that's the, the thing that's emerging, has been emerging for the last 40 years, the recognition that there are limits to science, that mm -hmm. science does not have all the answers. It provides observations and information from the observable world, which can then be applied to the particular questions by a society, by politicians, and it needs to work alongside other knowledge systems, the knowledge systems of religion or tacit knowledge or professional knowledge. Mm -hmm. We've got to be real and understand that everybody lives with more than one knowledge system. Right. Not all scientists understand that. I actually wonder whether scientists realise at all that there is more than one science system or knowledge system. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I think we better be careful about these words, science and science system. Science is a set of principles, as I explained, how, how we understand the world from observable information, test that information, and it's never a fixed knowledge system. It keeps on iterating as we get new knowledge. Science systems are the instruments of delivering science, mm -hmm. funding systems, the way universities operate, the way the private sector operates, the way governments uh, operate with relationship to science. And they vary very much around the world. Uh, we can debate uh, the nature of science systems, and I believe they need to change so that they're more able to support the kinds of complexity research we were talking about earlier. And that means getting away from single discipline science to not just interdisciplinary science with more disciplines from within the science community, natural sciences and social sciences working together, but it means involving the stakeholders, right. whether it's the government, the private sector, or the community, and having them involved not in a tokenistic way, but actually in helping define what is the problem that they want science to solve. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think, something that resonates a lot with me, with my experience in developing a government program. We really used the experience of experience experts a lot. And what they taught me is that when you're actually trying to tackle a problem, we scientists come in with theoretical knowledge, the experience experts come in with their experience knowledge, and then there's practical knowledge in, in how to do things. And they compared it to a tripod. So really, you need those three different 
pillars to actually build programs on. Is, is that something that you recognize? I recognize it in my own experience in a different way. I do a lot of work teaching about evidence to policy and the role of science and diplomacy. Mm -hmm. And in that field, there are many academics who've never practiced in the science policy space or never practiced in the science diplomacy space. And they talk an entirely different language, very theoretical, which has no relevance to me as a practitioner of science diplomacy or as a practitioner of evidence to policy. Mm -hmm. And I think we've got to be careful that we actually make sure we use the right framings in the right context if we're going to make a difference to the world. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a lot of experience with uh, working with Indigenous people and uh, using Indigenous knowledge also. Um, um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, your experience in working with, uh, with Indigenous people? Well, I come from New Zealand where the Indigenous people are the Maori people. They were in New Zealand for about a thousand years. That's 800 years before the first Europeans appeared. And like Many pe many Indigenous peoples, their relative position in society, economically, socially, has been disadvantaged. But they're very long-term thinking people. They think in multiple generations. For instance, the long-term intergenerational health of their tribes. And they came to us as... I run a centre for long-term thinking in New Zealand. They came to us and asked for their help, our help in thinking how they could do things. And we realised the most important thing was to build their trust. We had mm -hmm. to accept they have their own framing of their worldviews, their own values, which are not the same as those of traditional uh, modern scientists and, and their worldviews. But over a period of time, just by discourse and accepting that no project would be done until it had compatibility with both different worldviews, we developed enormous trust. And now they are doing for themselves the, and addressing for themselves the very questions which we give them the tools to use to make their own discoveries, their own understandings of the choices they need to improve their community. It's far better that they do that mm -hmm. than we tell them what they should do. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of learnings in that, and that is we would not compromise our science just like they would not compromise their knowledge system. And you don't try and blur the two because that compromises both. Right. What you're actually doing is trying to find a way that they can feel that their system and their worldviews are recognised, protected and trusted, but we can give them the tools from modern science mm -hmm. so that they can make get the knowledge they need to make better decisions. Long process, takes time, yeah. takes a lot of energy. Mm-hmm and is really rewarding. But the funding systems don't allow for that time. Right. They, you know, you've got, it took two years before there was that level of trust to actually proceed. Yeah. It's, it's, there are many interesting elements in, in, in your response, um, building trust and uh, actually realizing that uh, working together doesn't mean compromise, but actually you can take time to find ways in which uh, both sides are actually uh, uh, using the best of their uh, capacities and the best of their knowledge and ways of working. Um, uh, and another element that um, uh, I want to ask you more about is the long-term thinking that the indigenous people seem to have within their tradition and, and the realization that generations are linked. What do you think we can learn from that if, if we are talking, well, both in the scientific world, we're very much aiming for the next grant the next paper to write uh, in politics. I think it's very short-term thinking in terms of the next election. What could we learn from indigenous nations uh, about intergenerational solidarity 
um, uh, uh, to apply long-term thinking to to current... Well, I don't want to romanticise because I don't think we should. I mean, all peoples, whoever they are, from whatever culture, have issues in the here and the now, Mm -hmm. but but some are more likely to think about intergenerational reputation inheritance than others. And, and indigenous peoples do that. They also tend to have a different relationship to nature and to the environment than do most uh, Western populations. So there's many elements to it. But I don't think we need to, to go very far to say, you know, the basic evolutionary drive in every organism is to think about its intergenerational outcomes in Absolutely. terms of offspring, grand offspring, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, all said and done. That's been the basic driver of evolution uh, for f- three billion years. Yes. What happened is human evolution put on top of that the ability of us to use cultural and technologies to change our environments and our futures in ways mm-hmm. different than just being driven by the biological phenomena. We, and we now have got to the point where our technologies, uh, the way we operate, is potentially compromising our future. The technology of inventing the internal combustion engine 150 years ago now gives us climate change. The technology of industrial food production to help with food security now gives us obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and so forth. What does the technology of the internet do? I think most people think it's driving a pandemic of mental health concerns, amongst other things. Yes, it's doing great things in terms of communication, but it's driving disinformation, it's driving confusion, it's Mm -hmm. driving all sorts of issues. What will those language models, what will the metaverse, what will quantum bring? So we need to think about the, the future at a scale and a way we've not had to before, I think we've got to learn from the climate change example. We knew 35 years ago that the world was warming. 1985, the Villach Conference, the world is warming. Government, you better take notice. Now here we are 35 years later. It's not evident that the world's really taking it that seriously and the consequences that follow are there. Mm-hmm. So again, what we've seen in that, as we see in every other issue, in, certainly in, in democratic countries, is short-termism outweighs thinking about the long term. And that's true about the fact that now if you're in the stock market, it's about quarterly reports, mm-hmm. not about long-term gain. If, if it's about the next election, then you're less likely to, to think about investing for something for 20 years from hence because you want to win the next election. There's so many elements when you look at it which have led us to be short-term. I think the internet has driven it more, social media, the change in the fourth estate, all of this has driven more short-term thinking. We've The consumerist society, which took off after the Second War, drives that immediate hedonistic behaviour. Mm-hmm. And we all do it. We, oh, I mean, yeah. we all do it. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Um, but the issue is the world is facing a set of issues, the sustainability agenda. How many governments really take the Sustainable Development Goals that seriously. They all signed up to them 15 years ago, not really many of them taking it, even using it in their conversation. Uh, we've, the, 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 the technology changes are being driven largely from the private sector without evidence even knowing how we would regulate, control them or manage them in a way that was productive these are issues that are real, mm-hmm. and in the middle of it all, there are people. And if you think about people, if we look at Western societies, they're more fractured, they're more unequal, they're, there's more mental health concerns, uh, education systems are in trouble, uh, health has got great technologies, but many people are not getting access to those mm-hmm. technologies. So we've got some really difficult issues. And science can do so much on every one of them. 
but it can't do it from within the academic ivory tower. It can only do it by engaging with policy, mm-hmm. engaging with business, engaging with civil society, and listening to what the issues are yeah. and working with them to find the solutions. We can provide answers in ways. We can provide options, not answers, in ways that can be of great value. Right. So are you saying that scientists should, for instance, talk to politicians and policymakers and ask them what the evidence is that they actually need? What are the problems that they actually want answered? The first thing is to ask them, how can we help? What are the problems they are worried about? Too often scientists make a discovery, A causes B, and go to government and say, you must do A. Yeah. Exactly. Without any evidence as to whether it's a effective at scale, is it scalable? Has it got an effect that matters? Yeah. Is it aligned with the public values and the ideology of the society and the government? Yeah. And, 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 or else scientists go and say, we've got a problem. We need more money because more research is needed. That also turns them off. I think we we actually need to say this is the skill set that the knowledge system of social sciences, natural sciences and the humanities can provide. How would you, could we help it address the problems you're most concerned about? I'm actually, I've talked to many politicians from many countries and And while I may or may not agree with their ideologies, the bulk of politicians actually go in there with good motives. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You may not agree with the ideological framing, but they have good motives. The problem is we're not very good as an academic community at getting rid of the hubris and the arrogance that that we sort of go in there thinking we're superior to them because we know our subject. And I think, again, trust in science is all about removing the hubris and the arrogance with which the scientific community speaks. The other problem we see, and we saw this in COVID, is scientists have been brought up in a very competitive system, competing for funds, competing for promotions, competing for tenure, competing for... And so they compete, as we saw in COVID, for access to power. And that's why you need proper science advisory mechanisms so that the way in which science engages with the political system is actually a managed one. Otherwise, it's the person who screams loudest who has the impact, and they may not be one who has all the knowledge. And so I believe that in any nation or any unit of government, There are three elements that you need. You need a knowledge generation system, and that's universities, it's it's research centres. You need knowledge synthesis, people who can synthesise across domains. And that can come from universities, but it's more likely to come from academies or think tanks like this one, the Institute of Applied Studies, which Mm -hmm. can integrate across disciplines and not wedded to a discipline. And evidence synthesis is actually quite a skilled business. It's not just a matter of a Cochrane analysis or 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 some or meta. Right. It's a much more skilled business of thinking about what does social science bring, what do the natural mm-hmm. sciences bring, et cetera, et cetera, the issue. And then you need what I call knowledge brokerage, which is the interface between science and the evidence synthesis and the policy community, if we're talking about science to policy. But it could be the community. Science communication yeah. is, again, a form of brokerage. And that's got to be a two-way mechanism. And not every scientist is a good communicator and not every scientist is capable of being a good broker to governments because there's a, a formulaic approach that you need to have when you talk to policymakers. You need to build trust. You need to have a relationship so right. that they'll actually listen. You need to acknowledge the limits of knowledge. So I always go in there in my mind, what do we know? What does science tell us? What are the limits? What we don't know? What are the gaps in our knowledge? 
What are the consequences of those gaps? What does that mean for the possible conclusions? What does that mean for the options that might be there for the policymaker? What are the broader considerations that are not scientific, but which the policymaker will inevitably take into account? The spillover effects, the economic effects, the the political effects, these are all important. And we can't deny them. It's the world we live in. We don't live with a technocratic uh, Athenian organisation. We live. We live in a democracy, and we need to remember that. Yeah, yeah. So, so in in that model, which which would bring science and society much closer together, what would be the role of of societal groups, and what would be the role of funders? But maybe first, what 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 would be the role of the people? Um, well, the, the population really. Well, I think in any question of a complex nature, one needs to do a stakeholder analysis. Mm -hmm. And a stakeholder analysis has two components. Who are the people that are most affected by a situation? And who are the people who have the greatest influence? Because often the people with the greatest influence are the ones least affected by the outcome. And so you want to make sure in your interrogation of the issue that you bring to the table not those people with a lot of influence, but with no impact on them. You want to make sure you have the impacted community present and hear their voices. Mm-hmm. It's a complex business. It's not easy, and it's you can write you can write it theoretically, but in practice, you can't talk to everybody. Mm-hmm. And so, it's a matter of making sure in the conversations that you're not predetermining by the outcome by whom you talk to. And in terms of the funders, because this type of research would need to be funded, and we just discussed the the funding system is a very short-term one, what would have to change in terms of research funding, in your view? I think there's going to be a dramatic change in research funding mechanisms over the next decade. And uh, Michael Gibbons, the the great uh, scholar of science, once described two forms of doing science, mode one and mode two. Mode one is what we fund now largely in the traditional single discipline or or small group of discipline, hypothesis-driven, do the experiment the scientists want to do to find the result the scientists get so they can publish it, get promoted, get another grant and do more of their science. I'm sounding cynical, but that's the industry that's Mm -hmm, certainly built up. And that's encouraged by the way the funders work with small project grants, the fact that research assessment is largely still around impact factors and number of papers you publish, although that's changing, particularly in the Netherlands. Uh, It's the way the employers work because they use it to promote people, give them tenure. But it's not actually solving many of the problems the world has. Mode two research is what we've really been talking about, which is research which has the stakeholders engaged right from the beginning, Mm -hmm. has them helping to define what the real questions are, yeah. And and then deciding what the research that needs to be done, even if that's done in the more traditional mode. And the products are more like to be reports, changes in behaviour, rather than a paper in New England Journal of Medicine or, or <laughs> Nature or Science. Yeah. Now, mode two research is time-consuming. It's very different. It involves teams. The way it's assessed is different, et cetera, et cetera. So the International Science Council wrote a big report called Unleashing Science recently about the need for Mode 2 research. It was then followed by a paper which I wrote along with Matthias Geiser from Bergen on the future of transdisciplinary research because that's really what we're talking about. And then last two months ago, we released at the United Nations mm-hmm. at the High Level Political Forum for Sustainability a report flipping the science model which argued for the need to produce more mode two research mechanisms, including at the global level, as well as in national and subnational systems. Now, it will be there'll be a tension between the strong disciplinarians Mm -hmm. and every university, and nothing should be done to diminish the importance of disciplinary mode one research. 
But mode one research won't solve the problems. We need mm -hmm. mode two research as well. And it's at the moment the system from funders through the universities to the academies and all the ways in which scientists get their egos stroked is not designed for mode two research. Mm -hmm. So there's an <laughs> urgent need for systems to evolve to, to provide for it. Right. And, and do you see um, science funders um, playing a big role or, or do you think NGOs or, or well, other I think types both. of funders? I think, for example, the Global Research Council, which is the major body that brings national funders together, we've been talking to them at length. They show a lot of interest in it. Mm -hmm. That's, of course, one step along the way of a path. Yeah. There's continued interest through the International Science Council's Commission on Mission-Led Science for Sustainability, on piloting some global funding in this area in the near future. And I would hope that NGOs, philanthropic funders, for example, from a medical research foundation, I don't know, a heart foundation or, or yep. whatever, would realise that if they really want to make a difference for their populations, mm -hmm. be, be, as well as the mode one research model, they're going to need a mode two research model. Yeah, yeah. And what would that require in terms of training new scientists? It requires universities to think about how to train people in transdisciplinary behaviour. And, of course, they therefore need to think about the systems they will use to employ, recruit and retain people, mm -hmm. which need – and some universities are changing in that direction, recognising that outreach and engagement is an important uh, product from a university. It will require um, – uh, Recognising that particularly at the graduate and postgraduate level, new forms of institute, transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary activities on a different time base and funding model need to exist. I think research, you know, undergraduate will always remain disciplinary. It right. has to be. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. whoever it is has to, has to have their basic understandings in a discipline before they can move laterally. And then of no value if they don't have that depth. So I think we're still working that through, but I think progressive universities are now thinking about transdisciplinary activities but they need to be well-funded over time rather than imagining you can produce a project in six months mm -hmm. or one year or two years. It's a, these are long, slow processes. Trust is at the heart of it because even within science, and I'm sure you've seen it, building trust between disciplines is not easy. And, you know, natural scientists aren't brought up to talk to social scientists the exact science, natural scientists have to sometimes talk to the biologists yeah, who I, they I, regard as not doing exact science. <laughs> and so the, the, there's, there's a lot of, of trust to build languages to learn because the language mm -hmm. of social science is different to the language of natural science, <laughs> different to the language of humanities, different from that language of civil society. And so all of that has to be worked through. Yeah. It's no different to when we train a doctor. You know, we all we started learning anatomy and physiology and biochemistry and psychology and communication science, but we don't treat them as separate. When we became doctors, because we should say I'm also a paediatrician by background, we had to integrate all those things together. And so it's the same learning processes in a different situation yeah yeah it's it i found it really striking to work with people from different disciplines and see how although you think we're both scientists the language is different the procedures are different and it really takes time to get to know each other's field and to get to know each other's way of working but it's so rewarding once you do i think we need to look at the training of all scientists mm -hmm. i mean i think most scientists are taught either in the natural sciences or the social scientists, they don't get a glimpse of the other side or the True. other yeah. domains and don't realise it's not a matter of superiority, different questions, different explanatory platforms on which to base uh, your interpretation. But they follow the same fundamental principles mm -hmm. of observation and, uh, and explanation based on rationality, yeah. past observation. 
and logic. They're not, you know, so that I think that things are changing, but universities are actually very conservative entities. Uh, and I think that that's to get the kind of change that science can truly deliver for society will take time because yeah. uh, it's the universities more than any and the funding mechanisms that drive universities mm. that will determine the change. I mean, yeah. you yeah. can see the reactions when you try to move too fast. Uh, and they, they, it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. But in a way, I think what unites scientists in general is really curiosity. Uh, um, didn't many scientists go into studying something because they want to find out how things work or uh, find find solutions and in a way sometimes I feel that students aren't so much stimulated to um, develop that that curiosity and and look into different disciplines I would have a slightly different view I think most young people I meet do have that curiosity it's somehow we drum it out of them Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think I think it's different. I also think that the industry of science, if I can call it that, has become an industry of employment, re-employment, yeah. and driven by the incentives around bibliometrics, around impact factors, citation rates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's what's that's what's happened since the 1980s. And it's changed the way in which science looks at itself, mm -hmm. perceives itself, regulates itself, and that's got to change. I mean, the, this giant expansion of scientific papers, yeah. most of which, or many of which will not get read. At all, yeah, that's true. At all, has changed. And you look at that industry and you think fundamentally something has to change in the way science communicates to itself yeah. as well as to the world. And again, the International Science Council is thinking about these issues of open access, open data, how you actually change to make for a more effective system. Because at the moment, it's not an ideal system designed to take the world in a better direction. So we need a lot more time, more trust in, in science and much more long-term thinking, in a way, um, to actually tackle the problems that society faces. Trust is the awkward word, actually, Tessa, because we've seen around the world in the last 30 years a loss of trust in institutions, of politics, of media, of, of, of law, of banks, of financial systems. And I think academia as well. Now, it may, academia may have been more trusted than most of those other institutions, but across all of them, there's been a decline in trust over time, on which in the case particularly of, of all of them, but particularly in the case of science, disinformation, which is greatly empowered by technology, now makes it easier to even undermine science further. So I think one of the greatest issues, and one where... ISC spending a lot of time thinking about is what do we do to restore trust in, in science? science yes. Now, we can, it's easy enough to focus on producing trustworthy science, dealing with the ethics of science, reproducibility, yeah. experimental design. That's not what I'm talking about. The issue is the perceptions of science as trustworthy. Right. Now, part of that's the behaviour of scientists. We talked earlier on yeah. about how some of them clamoured for attention in the, in the wrong way uh, during the COVID pandemic. Part of it's there, but also a lot of it's about how science acknowledges its limits. I think when science acknowledges its limits, it's more trustworthy. When science goes beyond what science can do, then I think it becomes less trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to be more honest about what, we what do science and do not is, know. what it can do, what it cannot do. I think if we do that, we'll be seen as more trustworthy over time. We're doing a bit of work, we're thinking about it a lot because I think we've had you know, obvious episodes in the recent past where trust in science has been lost and been harmful. Mm -hmm. 
the vaccination issues are an obvious example, but I can think also the persistence of climate change denial or unwillingness to act on climate change is another example. Now, you can argue there it's short-term benefit uh, interests that Mm -hmm. make it difficult to make long-term decisions. But I also think that it's been easy to undermine trust in climate science to suit those interests. So we working with the United Nations, are really quite concerned to think about what can we do? What happens to happen to science communication, to the way in which scientists operate, the way in which we, we, we interact with society that will build trust back? Because it's hard to build trust up once it's been lost. And I think we're on the verge here. And so... Some not new thinking is needed in this space. And, of course, the rapid change of technologies makes that harder as each new technology brings upsides, but it brings downsides. And it's the downsides that will... And technology has also done a manifestation mm-hmm. of science, yeah. an ultimate manifestation of science. Mm-hmm. So these issues are all linked and we need to be more holistic in our approach rather than very, I know a lot about early life, you know, the biology of the the fetus or the neonate, Mm -hmm. therefore that's the most important thing in the world. We need to now think in a much more organic way that the children born today are going to live into the 22nd century. Their children are going to live into the 23rd century. How do we actually think about what their needs are in education, in which are very different to what our needs were, in being resistant and psychologically resistant to change. Mm-hmm. What limits, if any, can we put around the pace of change that's going on? They're going to live on a planet which is, is degrading. It's going to live in much more urbanised populations. They're going to live with limits on on a variety of resources that are going to be extracted. There's a lot of things going on here. And in a world where the assumption that the nation state, as we now see it, is going to be the way in which the world operates in 200 years' time or 100 years' time, may not be a safe assumption. So there's a lot of things here where we have obligations as the scientific community not to be... Um, dramatic and 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 not to be uh, pessimistic about the future, but mm-hmm. to say our obligation to the next generation is to think about the issues they will confront and try and be prepared so they are better prepared to confront those issues if and as they emerge. Right, right, and. As we do, um, we should be clear as scientists what we know about that future and the predictions and what we do not know is what you're saying in terms of well, building science trust. Science cannot predict the future. Nobody can predict the future. What we can do is anticipate the range of futures right. that are possible. And what we want to do is try and bring society to constrain that range to take actions that constrain the range of futures possible to a more acceptable, and obviously that's a value-laden term in itself, mm. range of futures. So right. I think I think we can describe what most people, at least in the West, would think are their futures, or I think right. most people in the world. You know, so let me give the example that I'm thinking about more and more. Sadly, it looks to me like the the dream of keeping the world to less than 1.5 degrees above the industrial baseline is not going to be met. I mean, I think it's sadly we're looking at a much warmer world than that. What do we do about that? Do we actually think about geoengineering? There are geoengineering solutions. Are they the wise thing to do? People say we shouldn't think about them because it defers governments from ah, from acting. Action. Right. But if, if the world's beginning to boil now and we're seeing societies in trouble, mm-hmm. should we be thinking are there reversible geoengineering solutions that could buy more time? Mm-hmm. These are the kinds of discussions 
that are hard to have, very hard to have, but pragmatically not having them may leave it till too late. But like if we hadn't had scientists working on mRNA vaccines a decade ago, would we have dealt effectively with the pandemic as we did? We wouldn't have. And therefore, science does need to be thinking at the same time about what might be needed. Yeah, in the future. In the future, even if it's awkward. And so, and we've seen in the debates over genetic engineering, in agriculture, and so forth, the complexity of these debates. Yeah. Because science does interact with societal values, and they must be respected. But at some point, sometimes action is needed. I mean, and, I mean, the mRNA vaccine is a very good example of where if the science had, hadn't been done decades ago, we wouldn't be where we are now. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It, it reminds me very much of, of a much more personal story to me. When I think about future generations, I always think back about the generations before me, and and we started our conversation with the egg that made you and me wasn't formed just before it got fertilized, but actually uh, goes back another generation in your grandmother's womb. Um, that time for me was the period when um, uh, the Dutch famine started to happen, and that affected my, my, my career in a way that I studied the long-term consequences. Um, but when I think of um, a few generations back and I think about my other grandmother who was um, a nine-year-old girl when she had to leave school because she was just a girl, it wasn't very important for girls to get an education. And uh, despite the fact that she was a really curious girl and she wanted to learn and she really enjoyed learning, uh, she was sent away from school and she had to help on the farm. Um, and it left her frustrated for many, 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 many years. She actually lived to be 107. So that's 98 years of frustration of not having had the opportunity to have an education. But she decided... Whatever's going to happen, my kids will all get a secondary education. So all her kids um, finished primary and secondary school. My dad was the first in, in the entire family to actually go to university. They lived on a farm in a rural area. He was the first to actually take the train to go to Amsterdam. You can't imagine that that was a really exciting thing to do. But But he studied, got his PhD. And when I got my PhD, and when I held my inaugural lecture, I was so grateful that my grandmother was still there, and uh, she was already <laughs> online attending, uh, attending that inaugural lecture. And I realized that if she hadn't had made that decision from her own frustration that I can't get an education and I'm going to do things differently, it did affect my ability to actually learn and go to university and uh, get an education. Um, and that always fills me with hope because sometimes the, um, uh, the challenges that we face are so complex and it's difficult to actually know what the long-term impact is of the things that we do. But looking back um, at my grandmother's experience of her frustration of not being able to get an education and deciding I'm going to do things differently. And now for me, looking back two generations, realizing I wouldn't have had the opportunity to learn if she hadn't made that decision makes me feel um, very grateful for all the chances that I got to get an education. Look, we're all, we're all the result of our destiny. You know, we're all the result. Three of my grandparents came from Jewish, you know, Jewish refugees from around the time of the turn of the 20th century. So right. way back, came yeah. to New Zealand way back then. And again, in difficult circumstances and all did very well. In fact, my maternal grandmother went to medical school. She was the fifth woman wow. to go to medical school in yeah. New Zealand, having arrived in New Zealand five years late, earlier, not speaking a word of yeah. English. So yeah. a very driven woman. Yeah. Um, but... I think we are all, obviously by definition, a function of our genes and our inherited environment. 
living in a world which is changing very rapidly. And as you know, in, in my academic research, <coughs> I write a lot about whether our the world that's changing around us once we're born is now mismatched to the world our biology and our e- has set us up to be born into, and that's leading to more and more issues. I'm increasingly drawn to the issues of mental health because I actually think that we're seeing this enormous rise and loss of subjective well-being in young, particularly in young people, children, adolescents, and to the extent that the science is robust and it's growing to be very much more robust than it was. We're seeing that that is influenced by maternal stress in pregnancy, the interaction between mother and other caregivers in the first two years of life, Mm -hmm. and and determining the level of psychological and social-emotional resilience those kids have for the very complex world they grow into in in late childhood and adolescence. So I think there's a lot here to think about. I think the science you and I started working on so many years ago is relevant, very relevant, directly relevant, but it's moving more, I think, to the issues of ability to withstand change and psychosocial resilience than it is to the more traditional diabetes, heart disease, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, where the Dutch famine work took us in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds as if you also are very much driven by your parents or grandparents, your ancestors' drive to make a change in a way. Do you actually feel that sort of um, um, uh, responsibility? I don't think I'd do the jobs I'm doing now did I not have that sense? I mean, the ISC job is very time-consuming. It's certainly an interesting job, but it's challenging. Being chief science advisor was an interesting job. Running a think tank and a very unusual think tank in a university mm-hmm. focused on long-term thinking, they're all challenging roles. And you don't do them for individual satisfaction. You do them because science... And people like ourselves who've been privileged to have good careers in science, I think have an obligation to try and make that of value to society. Now, we do it in different ways and to uh, different ways. Often the frustration is not that we want to do it, but the system constrains us from doing it. Mm -hmm. I've been lucky enough to be able to break through that most of the time and do it. But I think it's hard because institutions tend to want to worry about their identity, their reputation, their grant money, et cetera, et cetera. And we need to get them to sort of break down the walls of that ivory tower a bit more. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Peter. This this has been very inspirational for me, uh, very insightful, and it also gives me some um, additional courage to continue to try to do science for society and realize that we really need to change the way that we operate, that we need to build trust, that we need to be patient but persistent. Um, We need to be humble and work with people um, and really try to use science to create a better society. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Tessa. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us on this time travel journey to create intergenerational solidarity. I invite you to think about how your ancestors have shaped you to who you are today and what you might do to help shape future generations. Please reach out in case you would like to join our community and don't forget to subscribe.